What was supposed to be an enjoyable summer drive through beautiful mountain countryside was instead a journey we wished we'd avoided. As a research engineer who has, in very scientific terms, seen some shit over the years, I consider myself a skeptical believer, when it comes to the paranormal especially. Now usually I can find a logical explanation when something bizarre occurs. Once in a while, however, an experience will eschew any attempt at explanation. This was one of those experiences. In June of 2006, my spouse, Ash, and I had the opportunity to visit some friends from college who had recently relocated to western Pennsylvania. We were heading to Pittsburgh to help staff a fan convention held in the Steel City and made plans to spend a day with our friends after the conclusion of our con duties. Had we left earlier in the day, our commute home to southwest Virginia would have involved passing through busy areas during evening rush hour. With that in mind, it made sense to spend our day relaxing by the pool, enjoying burgers and hot dogs, and waiting until after evening rush to begin our leisurely five-hour drive home. As afternoon became evening, we reluctantly prepared to depart. At that point, we had yet to acquire a GPS navigation system. In fact, after the adventure that ultimately unfolded, we made certain to purchase one. Hearing that we were only equipped with our trusty 2002 Rand McNally Road Atlas, our friends offered to print directions from MapQuest, and we naively assumed that would be more accurate. This proved to be the first of many decisions we would later regret. For those unfamiliar with the region, the Allegheny Mountains in Pennsylvania and West Virginia are equally famous for both their breathtaking beauty and their heartbreaking poverty. The heart of coal country, this region was once full of life as the coal mines fueled the steel industry. As manufacturing declined, so did the many cities and towns peppering the otherwise isolated mountain valleys. In many locations, only a fraction of the population remains, after most residents left for greener pastures and the dense forest quickly swallowed up the once bustling towns. We departed Irwin, Pennsylvania around 6 p.m. that Tuesday for what should have been a pleasant evening drive through the mountains. The sun was making its way into the west and the sky was clear. We were looking forward to enjoying the sunset, cool night air, and arriving home before midnight. The directions were simple, or so we thought, Travel east on the Pennsylvania Turnpike for a few miles, and south on U.S. Highway 119. Though the route would change names and numbers a few times, it was straightforward. One long rural highway that would lead us to Morgantown, West Virginia, where we planned to stop for a snack and top off the gas tank. No city traffic, no hassles, just a relaxing tour through the mountains, 90 minutes at the most before setting back on the boring interstate. Or so we thought. Around Uniontown, something went very wrong. Neither of us can remember exactly how we made a wrong turn. In fact, we don't recall turning at all. We even had a printout in front of us that indicated everything was fine. No turns, just continue straight ahead. We both had reviewed the directions and reached the same conclusion. Follow this road, and it will go directly to where we want to be. We began to have our doubts as landmarks we expected to pass never appeared. The occasional small towns and family farms along our route had vanished, replaced by dense, dark forest. The sun was still shining, as it was only half past seven in the middle of June, but as the road became narrower and twisted sharply back and forth through the mountainous terrain, little light made it through the thick forest canopy onto the black asphalt ahead. Seeing no signs of a town for quite a few miles, we reluctantly concluded that we were now lost. We decided to pull out the road atlas to figure out where we were. I slowed down and called out the names of the next three crossroads we passed, though they were quite distant from each other until Ash found what we presumed was our location on the map. We were nowhere near the highway we believed we were following. Instead, 
were somewhere in the hills, high above and far to the east of our planet route. Glancing at the map, I grew frustrated and weary. The road ahead was barely touched by the last rays of the setting sun. It appeared we were at least an hour away from where we thought we were, and we were still heading in the wrong direction. We could either backtrack, losing another hour to return to where we believed our path diverted, or we could search for an alternate route south. We chose the latter, which would prove to be our next grave mistake. Ash followed along on the map, indicating that we were approaching another crossroad and we should turn. Neither of us remembers the name of the road, or if it even had a name for that matter, but the map clearly showed that we could turn right and follow this road back to where we belonged. I took the next right turn, both of us believing this to be the most direct route back to the highway we'd lost. Sunset in the mountains is striking, both for the beauty of the golden hour as it spills across the foliage, and for the suddenness with which the dark shadows quickly envelop everything between the ridgelines. What little light reached us was dwindling rapidly as we made our way along this twisting mountain road, paved but unlined in most places. We should have been in Morgantown by this point, but due to our previous blunder we were now at least an additional hour away. Impatiently, we made our way through the Appalachian twilight, now greatly looking forward to the appearance of a gas station or convenience store. As we continued through switchbacks and hairpin turns that grew higher and higher in elevation, one of us remarked offhandedly about a curious detail. Despite our atlas indicating this was a major road, at least for the region, we hadn't seen a single other vehicle since our initial erroneous ascent. No one ahead of us, no one following, and not a single vehicle had passed us traveling in the opposite direction. Rounding a precarious 180-degree curve, we suddenly emerged from the dense woods into a clearing, the long shadows of dusk casting a blue-gray tent over the small plateau. It appeared we had finally found ourselves in a quaint mountain town. Oh, thank goodness, both of us muttered, as the road was now lined by cozy mountain homes with small yards and shiplap siding. The speed limit had dropped to 25, and I remarked that as soon as we came upon a business establishment, we would stop to stretch our legs. As we slowly rolled through the town, on what was obviously the main and only street, our excitement over the presumed return to civilization quickly faded. One by one, we passed the simple homes lining the narrow, unlit road, still hoping that just around the next curve we would see the welcoming lights of a gas station or a greasy spoon diner. We glanced up at the houses perched among the trees above us on the steep hillside. Though the lack of any sign of food or fuel was an annoyance, it was the other things missing from this town that gave us far greater concern. We saw homes with well-kept yards, homes with children's toys outside, and homes with recent model vehicles parked neatly in the driveways. All of these things gave the appearance of an active, living community. But anywhere we looked, there was no single sign of life. Home after home was merely a dark, empty space upon the hill. Everywhere you would expect to see a light from a family's evening activities, instead we saw darkness. Every window was black as night. Not a single porch light glowed. There was no glimmer of primetime TV through second-floor windows left open to the cool evening breeze. No engines sputtered. No motors ran. The darkness was accompanied by a remarkably complete silence, broken only by our car's passing. A few commercial properties were similarly dark and shuttered. No security lights, no parking lot illumination. It felt as if the entire population of the town had simply vanished without a trace, perhaps only moments before we arrived. We had little time to think on this before something else convinced us there would be no stopping anywhere close to this town, regardless of what amenities might lie up ahead. Summer evenings in the mountains are, generally speaking, quite pleasant. As soon as we pulled off the turnpike and began our journey through more scenic areas, 
I had opened the sunroof to enjoy the breeze and the scent of the forested landscape. This had kept the ride quite comfortable despite our navigational rules. Eager to put this strange and empty settlement behind us, we passed what seemed to be the last home in town without seeing a single flicker of life. Just as the road began to rise out of the strange village, it suddenly felt as if the temperature in our car had dropped significantly, perhaps by 20 degrees. It's not uncommon for temperatures to vary quite a bit in mountainous areas. Sometimes you go around a curve and the other side of the hill is always in shadow, or a sudden updraft warms you from the valley below. Here, however, there was no change in terrain to explain away the icy chill. I shivered. Ash and I made eye contact before I turned my gaze back to the road and we nodded in unspoken agreement. Something was trying to get in. I reached up and jabbed the close button on the sunroof until the glass had sealed shut once again and slammed the shade closed beneath it. Staring straight ahead and deciding that speed limits were now purely optional, I accelerated hard up the next hill and remarked out loud, This place gives me the creeps. Ash added, Yeah, confirmation. And I gripped the steering wheel tightly while occasionally glancing at the rearview mirror to see nothing but darkness. Once again we were traveling alone down a dark mountain road. The bizarre town was behind us, and the road continued to meander through the hills while my knuckles turned white, and I occasionally gave thanks for the miracle of electronic stability control. Soon, however, we found ourselves high on a mountain with a clear view of the valley below. There, stretching out like a gleaming beacon of modern civilization, was the highway we were looking for. The pleasant yellow glow of high-pressure sodium lamps illuminated every square inch of the concrete pavement, and we could easily see that we were heading toward an interchange just a quarter mile ahead mountain road and the main highway crossed over the ridge. Safe once more on a well-lit road with wide shoulders, I finally set the cruise control and tried to relax, my arms aching from miles of unexpected autocross. I couldn't help but think about the strange town we'd passed through, wondering if something had happened. Was it actually recently abandoned? Maybe there was an extended power outage? Perhaps an old mine had collapsed and they hadn't let anyone back in their homes yet. Surely there would have been road closures or detours if something like that had happened, though, right? I asked Ash to pull out the road atlas again, which was stuffed beside the passenger seat, still open to the page we'd last used. So what was the name of that creepy town we just drove through, I asked, figuring it would be mentioned on the map somewhere along the road we thought we were traveling. There isn't a town, Ash replied. What? I asked, confused. There isn't a town. We took a right turn, and it should have been a few miles of absolutely nothing, then the highway. There's no town on the map, Ash insisted, gesturing to the page. The staple-bound U.S. road atlas isn't the most detailed map by any measure, so I figured the town was so small it didn't deserve to be labeled among the larger communities. Still, it seemed odd that our atlas would indicate a major road and not list a town as a landmark along the way. The rest of the trip was, thankfully, uneventful. In total, we wasted just over three hours driving so far out of our way, finally reaching home around three in the morning. In the rush of unpacking and laundry, and returning to work, the strange town deep in the hills was quickly forgotten. We spoke of it only briefly, one year later, while planning our drive to the same convention the following summer. Mostly, it was a convenient excuse for purchasing a GPS. We made sure we configured the navigation system to always stick to interstate highways. We also promised each other to never use MapQuest again. It would be another ten years before I revisited this strange story. Sometime during the summer of 2017, while reminiscing with friends about conventions past, I was reminded of that frightful drive home. I had recently discovered a feature in Google Earth that allowed for viewing satellite photos across a wide range of time, permitting comparisons of how places have changed over the years. 
I found myself wondering once again about the odd mountain town we had driven through. Comparing maps online, I traced what I believed to be as close to our actual route as was possible and made a startling discovery. The road we chose from the map in our trusty atlas, the only road through that region that could have returned us to the interstate as expected, was at least another ten miles ahead of where we turned. Traveling across the valley floor, it remains entirely to the east of the mountain ridge, and eventually meets with the interstate. It did, as the atlas had suggested, pass through mostly empty farmland without a random settlement along the way, but it also remained at a low elevation, flanked by mountain peaks on either side. There was no possible route that corresponded to our travel along the ridgeline, nor was there any way to view the highway from above. We both clearly remember our feeling of elation upon seeing the well-lit freeway below us, rising up to the ridge a short distance ahead. No matter how I modify the route, or how old or new the satellite photos I viewed in Google Earth, the results were always the same. The only road that connects those locations passes straight through the valley to the east, not over the ridge. We can find no trace of the phantom highway we traveled, or the empty community we drove through. There is no road along the mountain ridge, there is no road with a view of the interstate from above, and there is not a single structure built on the western slope of that mountain. Hi, I'm Jamie Markey. I'm Michael Tatum, and this is Cool Intention. Nailed it. <laughs> I like it. It's good. Well, one day we're going to stop being so impressed with ourselves that we can say our names Never. in the title of the show correctly. Never. I will always be impressed one with our ability day. to do the least thing. <laughs> 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 me, anyway, not you. Right. Yeah. You impress me all the time. Oh, you're sweet I'm, at lying. Very... <laughs> Are you impressed? <laughs> yeah. Who, who sent that story? That was from Carissa. That's such that a good story. I think that may be the longest cold opening we have, it but is, I didn't want to take much out because yeah, there was it was such was a good so nice. story and it was well written. Mm -hmm. Nice job, Carissa. And freaky and that's as terrifying. Fuck. And also MapQuest, yes, totally did that shit all the time. <laughs> yeah. Maybe not roads that never existed, but you'd be like, why am I why I didn't why am I here like ten miles out of my way? Yeah. I, it's funny, Michael we're, and I oh, were you gonna talk about <laughs> <her>? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I was in the car earlier today with the girls. And they're they're what, six and eight? Six and nine. Six and nine. So Seraphine we is were, nine and close we to talking, eight. We were talking six. about we were talking about the story and we mentioned like, you know, yeah, paper maps and stuff. Remember those? And they both asked completely nonchalantly, what's a paper map? Yeah. And we were both like, oh, oh my God, hip, oh, my it's hip, so oh, my painful. osteoporosis. It's a paper map. It's a paper map. Ugh. We had to explain to them, well, it's... <laughs> it's where the word map comes from. It's like a GPS made out of trees. That's right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, I still don't think they understand. So you They're would like, just fold it in your car while you're How driving? And we're like, and, and, and hearing them say that, we're like, yeah, I guess hindsight's twenty twenty. It does seem really unsafe. Yeah. Unless you had a, well, you were supposed you know, to a plot it. You're supposed to plot it out ahead of time. And then your navigator would tell you what directions to go. But if you if you had no navigator, if you right. were just traveling by yourself, I mean, I would check the map. But you know, I remember my first GPS was a TomTom. -tom. I had a TomTom. -tom. Yeah, it's still probably here somewhere. Um, I still get emails about updates. And every time I'm like, really? People are still? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of old people out but there. But I was driving out to my great aunt's house who lives in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma. And which I know I could have just said Oklahoma, but you get my point. <laughs> so it was these back roads through Texas up there in uh, Weatherford is where I was going. And <laughs> the, um, uh, the, the map had me going 
straight, but the road turned. And it was like, I felt like I was turning into... <laughs> like, I'm going off course. Not, like, like because I was stuck on the map, the turn, even though I was following <laughs> the road, I felt like I was going to drive off a cliff. It was the weirdest, creepiest thing. <laughs> and it took a while to get back. Because oh, it wow. didn't, I guess the, the road was newer than the update and because it was in the middle of nowhere. So, yeah. <laughs> we used to have, so our Tom Tom, um, you could put it, you can give it different voices. And we had mm -hmm. like an English accent, a very um, professional, very received pronunciation. And anytime, and so they pronounce things weird, like let's turn left on Houston Street instead of Houston right. or Davis instead of Davis. Weird things like that that we just, that tickled us. But my favorite was, she would always refer as a female's voice and she would always refer to farm roads, which are just on the map as FM, whatever right. number, as a turn left at the Federated States of Micronesia 128. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck is she talking? Straight what FM up, stands every for. far FM apparently to her meant Federated States of Micronesia. And That's... I was like, wow, we're real off course. Or straight on. That's amazing. <laughs> straight on till morning. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for that story. Mm -hmm. That was such a good story. Um, and creepy. Can't imagine yeah. how you deal with that later. Like, oh, we were on a road that doesn't exist. Road trips are so like road trips. There's a lot of potential for adventure on a road trip. Accidental adventure. And, and misadventures. Misadventure. Misadventures. So you know our title today. I yes. Think. Our title is, hold on, I'm looking it up. <laughs> <laughs> we're ready and prepared oh, as always oh, um i decided to call it the sweetest morsel oh that's right which is from uh, a poem by sir walter scott revenge the sweetest morsel to the mouth that was ever cooked in hell <gasps> dun, it just dun, sounded dun. good i'm not sure if it has anything to do with your story but sir walter scott does have a an ancillary role to play in the story I'm doing after yours. Oh, nice. I mean, brief. It's a brief mention, but a, but a pivotal, as actors right. like to say one when they that... only have five minutes of screen time. Right. I'm a pivotal character. Pivotal. It's one that will give us a title, which is really all we're it's looking for. It's a good title. For. I think it'll work for mine. And there's some vengeance in mine. I think it'll work for some mine. Some twists and turns. Some yeah. drama. Oh, so, nice. So my, my story, I was looking at, uh, at mine and I thought I knew a lot about, I knew, I knew the basic story and have known it for years because it's a good, good classic, you right. know, uh, late Victorian style ghost story, which I'm kind of on a kick around now. And I started looking up, I'm like, oh, oh, I didn't know any of this. Oh, oh, shit. There were a lot of tea. Say, a lot I, of tea to I be spilled. I had no idea about mine as well. Well, now what's yours? So I was talking Start to some off. friends. Um, online and I was saying, you know, who has recommendations? Because I have a lot of things written down and doing this show is interesting because I'll have like 50 different topics to look at. Mm -hmm. But then there's something inside me that's like, I don't want to look up those right now. I want mm -hmm. something else. <laughs> and that's the situation I was faced with. So a friend of mine immediately was like, Cahill Mansion in Gulfport. And I was like, what? I've never heard of it. So, I, thought, I literally thought you just said Kegel Mansion. The Kegel Mansion? Is that like... We're talking revenge again. <laughs> no. No. Um, it's like the new... It's like a really... It's like the Hustler Mansion, basically. Right. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, no. Cahill. C-A-H-I-L-L. Cahill Mansion. She, if you were GB, if you were Tom Tom, you'd say... Cahill. 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 Right. <laughs> Um, in Gulfport, Mississippi. M I S S I S S I P P P I. M I crooked letter, crooked letter, I crooked letter, crooked letter, I hump back, hump back, back. Hump back, hump back. Um, 
<laughs> yes. And so I started looking and immediately was just sucked into this crazy ass story. Oh God. Yeah. And, I know um, no, I've never heard of this. I know nothing about yeah. it. So I got a few things. There's the Biloxi Sun Herald, which used to be the Daily Herald. I got a lot of stuff from them, mm. multiple articles okay. about it. Um, and then Paranormal Gumbo as a website is pretty great. And okay. so I use that as well. That's a great name. Yeah, Hang on. Right? Let me have a sip of uh, a ghostly mule. Do it. Oh, me too. Oh, clunk. There we go. There we go. <laughs> it's just as it's just they're not meant to <laughs> um okay so first the first thing i read was posted in 1981 in the herald by nancy campbell and this is what got my attention immediately okay. i'm so ready cahill house destroyed in fire spirits free that's the headline <laughs> now that that's, That's a shepherd headline. hook. That's a shepherd's hook of a headline. Uh-huh. Here's the first paragraph. The state fart the state fart marshal. <laughs> That's not accurate. <laughs> Mississippi that. probably. I've has been a around fart a six-year-old and a nine-year-old for a <laughs> no, while. Everything marshal. is a fart related. <laughs> Hashtag fart marshal. Hashtag fart marshal. Oh, need them with our dogs. Oh God. They just all get along so well because they just <laughs> fart at each other and everybody thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> I think it's how they communicate. It's true. Yeah. It's like whales. Um <laughs> Humpback, humpback. <laughs> so, okay, okay. Sorry, so, so fire. Back, back, back. Free back, spirits. Back. Wait, spirits in the Spirit free? free? <laughs> the state fire marshal has been summoned to investigate a fire which destroyed an old residence on Kimball Drive, a once elite three-story house long suspected by many to be haunted. Mm-hmm. Flames erupted in the second story of the frame structure on about... Oh, not on, just about 1.20 p.m., where ironically, a seance had been held the night before. <sighs> okay, I'm I'm gasping because the connections to my story are already really? freaking me the fuck out. That's amazing. <gasps> See, this is why I wasn't feeling any of those other 50. We're so connected. <laughs> Owned by Dr. Candle Gregory of Gulfport, the home had been unoccupied since June 1969. And this was in 1981. The seance was held with Gregory's permission. Gulfport Fire Superintendent Haney said at the scene that the fire was suspicious. Numerous groups, most of them having the Gregory's consent, have visited the home in recent months to delve into the supernatural mysteries which have been reported there. The Reverend David Bubara, a former Baptist minister from Memphis, a parapsychologist, visited the home last fall and predicted the structure would be destroyed by fire before it could be demolished. There's no fucking way. There's no really? way. Really? There's so, you're good. I'm just, All like, right. I'm so excited now. Okay, so here we go. I have to pay attention though, because I'm like, oh my God, but that's like my story. And I'm right. not, I'm, I'm sorry. It might take a turn. The, I, okay, great. I'm Perfect. with you. I'm with you. All right, here we I'm go. I'm ready. I'm, I've got my GPS. <laughs> Don't go into a lake. <laughs> Built in 1915 by William Stewart. The Cahill Mansion was a large, white, three-story house with several windows facing a circular drive on Kimball Drive in Gulfport's Bayou View neighborhood. Bayou View. Bayou View. Bayou View. Neighborhood. Bayou View. The Bayou View. Now, okay, it's often considered to be part of Hansboro in Gulfport, but it's actually outside the lines of Hansboro, which is like an area within Gulfport. Um, Mm. I just want everybody in Gulfport to know that we're paying attention. Hansborough area was larger in the middle of the 20th century, so it seems like that's where the confusion comes from. But when you look, uh, it's like, oh, it's in Hansborough. No, it's keep not. changing. I it's got just you. outside. Anyway, 
The mansion was owned by several different owners until it was bought after World War II by a local chiropractor, Dr. Cahill, hence the Cahill Mansion. The Cahill family lived in the home without incident until their 14-year-old son, Richie, was killed on the property while riding a tractor. When his mother found him pinned under the tractor, he seemed to be fine, but soon he became pale, weak, and ultimately collapsed. Oh. Sad. As an ambulance rushed him to the hospital, Richie died, and the Cahills never got over the tragic incident, moving out four years later. Mm. In 1957, Dr. Candle Gregory and his wife, Ginny, moved into the mansion. Immediately after moving in, Ginny felt like something was not quite right. My first feeling upon moving here was simply of not being alone, Ginny said. I felt like I was being watched. The supernatural activity could get so active, she sometimes wore earplugs to muffle the strange noises. <laughs> strange noises, which included disembodied screams, terrible moaning what? sounds. Yes. What? Yes. This is fucking crazy, Jamie. I'm sorry. I mean, everybody's gonna have to listen to this a second time, so they'll because I have no fucking clue. What you're I know, about. I know. I'm just, I'm sorry. I'm okay. like, it's a good story, but I'm like the 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 parallels. I know you were like, what? I was like, disembodied screams. Did I stutter? <laughs> <Huh>? <laughs> Why? <laughs> this isn't that. Ex- I mean, we've heard about disembodied screams before. I know, but it's, it's just... terrifying. But still, uh, terrible moaning sounds, footsteps on the stairs, and a grating noise. Closet doors would open and close by themselves. One night, the Gregorys were asleep in their bed when the headboard began to shake and knock loudly. The two mm-hmm. quickly got up to find out what the fuck was going on. When they found nothing, they went back to bed. As soon as they lay back down, they started to hear what sounded like fingernails clicking and scraping down the headboard. Ginny okay, until that, I was pretty much like, maybe the husband was masturbating. I was right. like, what? When, when, the, when the wife woke up, he's like, what's that? No, I don't. Unless he was like, oh, there's nails clicking. What's that? <laughs> Could be. You never know. Ginny also said, we were often awakened to hear what sounded like footsteps running through our room. Mm. In the same room, my son awoke to what looked like a little boy of about four years old coming out of the closet. The child continued on through the bedroom and out the door. My son ran after him and there was no one there. She also told the following Ooh. story. My son was sleeping on the den sofa and at 4.30 a.m. was awakened to see a luminous figure flowing in the darkness. It moved across the room until it reached the far window and disintegrated. Oh. One of the craziest things that happened happened on the same day that JFK was killed. Mm. The Gregories awoke to their children screaming and freaking out. When they went to see what was wrong, they saw a strange substance dripping down the curtains and smeared on the window pane. What? Upon closer inspection, the liquid looked a lot like blood. Poltergeist shit. That's typical poltergeist shit. Dr. Gregory took a sample of the substance to his office to test it, and it tested positive as human blood. A lot of people, a lot of things are like, it's it's like pH positive blood or whatever, yeah. which is the same kind that JFK had. But like, that's... <clears throat> Why would JFK's blood like be transported magically to yeah. a house in Mississippi? That and also the majority, it's most, it's you're either positive or negative. And the majority of people are positive. Like mm. it's, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. It's mostly used in pregnancy stuff. Oh, okay. So like if you're... If you're positive and you're carrying a child who's negative, then there could be some real problems, basically. Uh, to, to sum up. Call Maury Povich. Yeah. Now, as far as, though, that happening, um, they did not know at this time that he 
had been killed. Like people did not find that out till later in the day. Okay. So it wasn't like, ooh, this thing happened on the same. It yeah, because people have to think back then, like we weren't as surrounded by right. news updates as we are now. I mean, exactly. like you had to watch television or listen to be listening to the radio. Yeah, you could, you could. What's the what's the phrase? Get away from it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> back then, God. Um, uh. Yeah. Okay. Unexplained small fires appeared in the house multiple times as well. Jenny came home one day and opened the cabinet under the kitchen sink, where she found a small red candle burning. She then accused the maid of trying to burn down the house, which I think is pretty insensitive. But the maid said that she had found the lit candle under the sink earlier in the day, put the flame out, and placed it in the sink. That's uh, creepy. That's very creepy. Yeah. When ghosts want to burn things down, mm -hmm. it's like, but this is your place. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. Oof. According to Jenny, my son walked into his bedroom one afternoon and his full jacket laying across the bed burst into flames it was partially destroyed before he could put out the fire Fuck. that was on november 17th 1963 so that was before the blood on the curtains mm -hmm. by like a week yeah yeah the gregory's did some research and found out that they were not the only ones with strange experiences in the home past owners of the home reported cold spots which moved around light fixtures that would fall certain rooms that could not be painted and a general creeping feeling which is probably due to all the other shit happening. Well, yeah. And the little boy? Yeah. Her son was not the only person to see him. A friend of Mrs. Gregory's, Jenny's, got quite a start when she was talking on the telephone in the kitchen of the Cahill Mansion. She noticed a boy standing by her, reprimanded him for eavesdropping, and went back to her telephone conversation as he walked away. When she discussed the in incident with Jenny, she was informed that no boy had been in the mansion. They looked through the photo album, uh, looked through a photo album where the friend identified a picture of the boy she had seen. Shockingly, or not shockingly, <clears throat> the picture was of young Richie Cahill. Jenny's friend had not known about uh, the young man's death. Having the album to me is a bit suspicious. Like, why are you going to have the album to the people who've been there before, especially with pictures of their son? That is a little odd. That's a little I mean, weird. If it was a historical mansion yeah then maybe you know it would have i mean that seems or maybe odd. they just left it behind in the attic they just didn't see it when they moved out that happens a lot with moves yeah but it's just strange that hmm that is that is an odd detail right. i mean i guess it's not the timeline it's not a deal breaker but it is weird right the timeline works out though based on because i read some things that said that he bought it in 1940 mm -hmm. some other things that said after world war ii but i think um it was probably if he had bought it in 1940 which is after before the war was over but after it was no longer being occupied. Mm -hmm. um, and the kid was born right then. He would have, at 14, he was when he died. That would have been in 54. Yeah. Moving out four years later would have put it at 58. And the Gregory's moved in in 57. So with yeah. a little bit of wiggle room for him not being born while they were in the house, I, the timeline can work out. Yeah. And it's also possible that the whole photo album is just like a convenient plot device when whoever's writing the yeah. story goes like it could be that like they researched this going okay well was a little boy and would have found articles about his death right yeah and seen pictures presumably in the newspaper but either way it's i mean they could have they could have easily found a picture i'm right. not sure if i buy them finding in a photo album they right. just had around maybe what it but is maybe. here's what i'm here's what i'm gonna say this is what it is mm -hmm. in my movie <laughs> <laughs> i love that you say it like that <laughs> Jenny, in my movie in my movie jenny gregory had done research on the house to find all of, you know, the information she could. And then that, and she made a photo album of the clippings oh. of newspapers and 
print out scrapbooking was really big in the yeah so i think that she probably had a picture because she was doing research that's what i decided okay okay well that's well look at you now it all makes sense (laughs) okay by the late 1960s the gregory's decided to piece out of the home and considered bulldozing it to subdivide the property for single family houses on the increasingly popular neighborhood after they moved out the house became a go-to for supernatural enthusiasts most Mm. of whom had the gregory's blessing as well as vandals who did not have the gregory's blessing (sighs) that's <sighs> six of one. Um, <laughs> six the, of one. Fifteen of the other. The house was scheduled to, was scheduled to be demolished, but that was delayed by weather and a bunch of other things. Like, we understand that, right? I've also <laughs> I've read that um, what the construct the head of the construction the contractor that mm. they had hired had died like the morning it was supposed to start, mm. um, but the majority because uh, you get kind of mixed information. But everything does say that Hurricane Camille struck Gulfport in August of 1969, mm, mm. which is what really caused the delay and the demolition. I imagine that hurricane moved up the Gulf and hit Houston, where my mother was, oh, and that's the that was the yeah, and that was the that was a big deciding factor for them to move moving up to oh, Central Texas, North Texas. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Thanks, Hurricane little, Camille. Little, little, um, not trying to make it all about me, but. But I just here thought, oh, we I are about Hurricane Camille because my mother. Yeah, uh, it's your podcast too. So <laughs> uh, because of that, the house was further damaged. Several windows in the home were boarded up, and rain damaged the flooring on the third level. Jesus. So just imagining this old, white, beat-up, huge house with all of these windows, oh many God. of them boarded up, rain damage. That must have looked haunted as fuck. Not to mention the electric bills. Oh, shit. I can't imagine. <laughs> um, that's why uh, the fires were constantly being started. <laughs> it's they were cold. The, it was cheaper than turning on a light. Um, yeah. <laughs> in late 1969, Dr. David N. Bubar of Bubar, B-U-B-A-R, Bubar, Bubar, of Tennessee, a Baptist minister who claimed psychic powers, former Baptist minister. I was going to say former. <laughs> like, I don't think the Baptists would be too keen on those yeah, claims. No. He conducted a seance at the house with the Gregory's blessing, much like the other ones. During the seance, woke. I know. During a seance, Bubar supposedly spoke with a spirit of a girl named Flossie. She told him she'd Flossie. been forced into being a sex worker and subsequently oh. having an abortion. She was later murdered. Bubar, speaking in a strange voice, said the following. He shot me. I'm sick. I'm corroded. My body is full of holes. Oh. But picture like a dude saying it in that voice. <laughs> that would be... Creepy. Very funny. Everybody creepy. was creeped out by his voice. It was creepy just you doing it. And that's... Thank you. Um, more spirits told Bubar that they had met their end when the house served as a military officer's club during World War II. They recounted lurid stories to him about men from New Orleans and girls brought in from Louisiana. The spirits speaking through Bubar told of murders, of bodies of women and children being butchered in an upstairs bedroom. Ooh. I cannot find anything factual supporting the butchering. That tends women. to be a popular urban legend, though. Like, yeah. you know, so many people died in that upstairs room. Right. With Satanists. This is the or, worst room. Or yeah. progressives. <laughs> <laughs> people who believed in women's right to choose. Um, <laughs> kill them. That'll fix it. Life is sacred. Uh, <laughs> just not theirs. Just not theirs. 
Okay, but it did turn out that the home had been leased by the Air Force as a non-commissioned officer's club. The sergeant who managed the club had brought in illegal gambling and prostitution. Um, 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 Rumors of the club's shady activities had swept through the community at the time. Locals even told stories of enslaved prostitutes, some underaged, forced abortions, and even murder. So, poor Flossie. As soon as the sergeant's superiors got wind of the debauchery, they promptly shut the entire operation down. Which is why I think the 1940 move-in could have happened because they probably would have shut it down before World War II was over. Yeah. It could have possibly happened. Um, but that's four years or before. Anyway. Well, and not to here's the thing too, like with the war with the war coming, like I don't imagine prostitution houses of ill repute would have been doing very well because most of the men were being shipped off. Right. So and it was an- so they'd have been like, ah, so like, I, I guess, I don't know. I'm just saying like, if, if a township were fighting to get one closed, they would have had less of a fight. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Possibly. Yeah. So, but regardless, by the time the Gregory's had purchased the home, rumors of it being haunted were already running rampant in mm. Gulf Court. So kind of makes you wonder if Bubar didn't just do a little research before his seance or seances, depending upon you talk to right however a daily herald reporter who was there during the seance witnessed the table they were using move according to instructed direction then it bumped rocked and moved several feet across the floor the journalist said when dr bubar began getting response from what he called the spirits those in the room were observant of everything going on they watched for trickery there appeared to be none just answering taps or table movements On that night, Bubar predicted the house would be demolished by fire. He seemed to believe that the only thing that would free the spirits would be the house burning down. Hmm. I don't trust this guy. I just just don't trust him. Maybe it's because he was a former Baptist minister. It's possible. (laughs) His resume inclines me not to trust him. (laughs) Right. But early on the afternoon of July 18th, 1970, about six months after that seance... The old Cahill mansion was found fully engulfed in flames. Mm -hmm. Firefighters battled the blaze, but the wood frame house was mostly a loss. Mm. When Bubar was told about the fire, he replied that he was delighted the house had burned down as (laughs) it will free those poor, unfortunate entities that have been trapped there. Was it maybe he, did he come? I mean, in my movie, he set the fire himself. Well, funny you should say that. He's Um, like the bad guy from Batteries Not Included. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yes. Uh, five years later, Bubar was found guilty on four federal charges connected with a fire that destroyed a rubber products plant in Connecticut. He had previously well, he worked at the plant everywhere. I know he's on a mission. Uh-huh. Uh, he had previously worked at the plant and curiously had also predicted a fire and explosion would flatten it. And to be clear, it wasn't just a fire. It was like explosion. He, he one of his charges was bringing explosives across state lines. Like that was one of the charges that he was found guilty of. And um, he tried to set up his, he said that his boss at the time, the owner of it, or Mm -hmm. um, that he was part of it, but that guy was not, he was not found guilty. So I mean, he was sentenced to 20 years. Bubar was, and he served six and a half. So I don't know where he was. I couldn't find a whole bunch of stuff on the fire or 
you know, it was just suspicious. That's what they all said. Uh, yeah. A guy yeah. predicts that it's going to burn and it burns. Six months later. And he's later, later found. And like, the day before had there had been a seance. I don't know if he was running that seance or not, though. It did not say it in the papers. Yeah. So it's maybe, it gets a little not. confusing. Maybe, well, but that's, hmm. I don't know. You would think they would what say the, What the are the odds before? that it wasn't him, though? I'm, like, I'm just saying, like, from, like, people just, like, randomly having seances. Like, he probably, mm-hmm. it was probably all him. Like, yeah. he'd already set up, like, the whole scam of, like, here, we're going to have a seance. And he's like, oh, we're going to do it again. I, I don't know. It just seems, it seems weird that multiple people over a period of years would have different seances there. Well, it became, like, a supernatural site oh, okay. in the area. So people. But was it accessible people, to everyone? Or did this if guy asked, already have, like, connections to no, be like, hey, no. I'm doing another seance. Like, yeah, sure, people. you did a couple of years ago. Go ahead and, like, see there. I don't no, know. Who knows? No, no, the, uh The owners were okay with people going in and doing. Hmm. So, I mean, it was, at this point, it was 1969. All of this, you know, that yeah. kind of supernatural stuff was just starting to get into play. It wasn't as yeah, big yet. Yeah, Age of it Aquarius was, was. Right, just starting just to get in about, there. Just, just dawning of the Age of Aquarius. Right. So, uh <laughs> You know, they they were letting different ty- different groups of people go in, hmm. local, hmm. and this guy came in from Memphis, and they allowed him. And he also had a church of like, you know, a, a flame worshippers. Kind of, <laughs> I feel like flame was in the title or something <laughs> they did. But the cleansing um, fire of God. Yeah, so the fire up. definitely was suspicious. Do we know if it's spooky? I don't know. Was it the spirits? God, there are a lot of fires that were started randomly inside the house that nobody seemed to start and they would you know the jacket mm. catching on fire right in front of their faces and a weird candle and the candle thing right maybe he did contact the spirits and if he did set the fire in allegedly my movie um maybe he did it to set the spirits free because he really believed in my movie yes he did it but he was possessed by the spirits <sighs> at the time yes and that's the final twist. I like it. At the end, we yeah. learned that he was—he did it, but it was the spirits actually. Because they wanted to be set free. They wanted to be set free, or they yeah. just like, or they told him that because they just wanted to burn it down. They and, just want to watch the world burn. They just watch the world burn. Yeah. And hmm. so, okay, the house was finally demolished, and new homes were built on that property. Um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see if the spirits were really freed or not. Uh-oh. But that boomer guy was a fucking nut. I mean, he sounds it. He is okay. So he had prophecies. There was an, a book in 1971 written about him called You Are Psychic The Incredible Story of David in Boobar. I think I've read that. It's he has a lot of prophecies in it. Some one was like the hurricane. I was like, Ooh, you predicted a hurricane in the Gulf. That's very original. Um, <laughs> I mean, come on. It'll be a hurricane in five days. Yeah, the Weather Channel said that. Right? My favorite thing about the book is it has one three-star review. And that review says, I did not like the book as it did not fit the profile of a man I personally knew. And you still gave it three stars? I still gave it three stars. God, what do you give two stars? I know. (laughs) Um, And I think that's because after he got out of prison, he renounced his psychic powers and became a preacher again. Oh, he went back. And, yeah. He came back to the flock. He came back to the flock. His brother was a chaplain for a fire department in new york oh 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 that's an unfortunate connection or is it the the brother feel guilty because his brother had set these fires i don't know oh man oh that's what a great right 
Oh, dramatic turn. I know. And that, I mean, I couldn't really find a ton. So I was just looking up like the obituaries and stuff like that. Yeah. He died in 2006 in, um, Al- no, in New York. Okay. Somewhere in New York. Um, like Albany? Albany, that's where it was. Yes, thank you. Uh, so, you know, it's hard to say what the story was with him and the fire and everything, but it seemed like there was really some shit going on in this house. And you well, know, fire was a thing before right, he showed up. Right. And there was really some Or nasty we find shit. out in my movie, the maid was his mother. <gasps> and Pyromania runs in the family. Yeah. No. The maid <gasps> was Richie's mother. Dun dun dun. And she thought Richie was trapped in the house. Oh my. And that's why she Oh, I love it. I love I love that we're just making a story up now. Why not? But why Why not? not? Why not? That was great. That's all the consistent stuff. There's a lot of inconsistencies and things that are blown out of proportion. It seems like ghost ghost stories. There's always so many um, rabbit holes that don't pan out. Yeah, it seems like a lot of what Bubar said in the census had happened, had happened, but then the community already knew about it. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't a big secret. And, And, you know, it makes you wonder too. When Jenny moved in there, did she already have this preconceived notion of it being haunted and so saw things? Maybe. You know, but. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It is creepy, though. stuff. And I'm curious if anybody lives around there or knows anybody who lives well, around there. Well, because there's multiple houses there now. I mm-hmm. wonder if anyone experiences. Yeah. Like, things are, like, because it seems to be attached to the fires house even. rather than, like, the lamp. Oh, fires. Ooh. Who knows? Well. Well, because it wasn't completely destroyed. So were those spirits yeah. free? Maybe they got half out. <laughs> and now they're like, oh, uh, damn it. Now they'll Almost all be like no knees. Or like, yeah, no knees. They'll just be top halves of bodies and lower <laughs> halves of bodies walking around. Um, that sounds awful. <laughs> you know? And awesome if it's not my story. <laughs> it's, it's comedy when it happens to someone else. Really quickly. Yes. I have to pee. Then Me too. Okay. And then I'm going to make another drink. Do you want to? Yes. yes. Okay, sweet. All right. Okay. Hit me with it. All right. So this, my topic this week is the infamous Borley Rectory, once reputed to be the most haunted house in England, which of course being England is fucking saying something. Right. Do you know anything about it? Have you heard it? I don't know. Start talking and I'll let you know. All right. Well, let's just begin with nothing promises an otherworldly encounter quite like the English countryside at dusk. Now, the village of Borley lays nestled in the sprawl of verdant farmland, uh, its stone chimneys peeking over the foliage, 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 trimming the border between Essex and Suffolk. It's uh, kind of toward the east, uh, toward the east coast of England. Now, with a church dating back to the 12th century, this sleepy little hamlet is so quintessentially British, you'd be forgiven for thinking yourself stuck in an illustration from some long out-of-print edition of Jane Eyre. It's like so British. Now... (laughs) Wander the grounds of the rectory on any given evening in the late 19th century, and you could probably find the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull gazing out across the deepening landscape from the garden of his summer cottage, puffing away at a customary after-dinner cigar. He would scrutinize the hedgerows, let his attention drift to the churchyard, inhale a thick draught of East Indies tobacco, then scan the horizon like a general awaiting word from the front lines. Turning his head to one side as he exhaled, the slight, amply mustachioed rector was careful not to let the smoke obscure his line of sight. That he observed this nightly ritual more or less without fail since having built the cottage in 1871 came as no surprise to his parishioners. He'd situated it to command precisely this view. Reverend Bull was hoping to see a ghost. Oh, what? 
He and his wife and their children solemnly dubbed the area near the cottage the Nun's Walk, after the sullen apparition often seen meandering across the lawn. The origins very of this Very different pale... than the Baptists. Very different. Belief. But... <laughs> like, they're not, they're going to be like, that's where the devil walks, that's not a <laughs> right, nun. Right, right, right. Now, the origins of this pale, preoccupied specter were a mystery. Locals spoke in hushed tones of a 14th century Benedictine convent that once stood on the grounds, and of an adulterous nun caught in flagrante delecto with a Cistercian monk. Get the, it, girl! <laughs> for the crime of forbidden love, they said. He was hanged. She, get this, was bricked up in a cellar like Fortunato from Edgar Allan Poe's, uh, Edgar Allan Poe's The Cask of Amontillado. Right. Like, the period was not kind to women of passion. No. Um, others... You could have stopped at women. <laughs> right, yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, others say that she'd been a French nun named Marie Lair, uh, who rescinded her vows and married Henry Waldegrave, lord of the manor that replaced the monastery sometime in the 16th century. Legend has it he strangled her one night in a fit of rage and secreted her corpse into the walls of an underground tunnel. The details, as is so often the case with female ghosts in particular, are sketchy. I feel like she had to have been walled up. For someone to just not bury her and decide to... Uh, we'll get there. Okay. We'll get there. It just seems like a lot of work. It... <laughs> Burying someone in a wall is a lot of work. Right. It, it really is. Um, be that as it may, whatever the specter's pedigree, Henry, uh, Henry Bull, the rector, had seen enough of the ghostly nun since being named rector in 1862 to warrant adding a separate house onto a property already boasting a stately 23-room home. The wow. rectory, that's the, the rectory itself, was built on Hale Road the year of Bull's promotion across from Borley Church, replacing an earlier, more modest version that had been consumed by fire in 1841. Modesty in the Catholic Church? I think not. <laughs> <laughs> Designed in the neo-Gothic style and sitting on four acres of lush green countryside, the severe red brick edifice stood in stark contrast to its surroundings over a network of subterranean vaults and tunnels dug long ago. Creepy. The purpose of these tunnels remains unknown, but got the town folk talking, particularly when the tunnels were incorporated into the rectory's cellar. They were, after all, the supposed final resting place of the ill-fated nun. From the moment the first bricks were laid, Borley Rectory seemed designed, uh, destined, rather, for trouble. Yes. Now, Reverend Bull and his substantial family were the rectory's first residents, of course. In fact, Bull had it built. Not long after moving in, he and his wife decided to add another wing to accommodate the children who would eventually grow in number to a staggering 14. Children that she had out of children. her own vagina. Catholics. Um, I'm telling you, they get busy. Uh, more power to them. From the outset, they had more than their share of not just children, but also hair-raising experiences. Poltergeist activity of every stripe plagued them day and night. Disembodied footsteps, strange voices, mm -hmm. mysteriously moving objects, the frequent agonized scream of an unseen woman. Yes. Such occurrences became commonplace. Staff and guests alike would be found muttering in a state of shock, insisting they'd been spied on through the windows of the main house by faceless, shadowy figures peering in at them from outside. Yikes. The turnover rate among servants was, as you might imagine, astronomical. And so fascinated was Reverend Bull with the bizarre phenomenon that he built a summer house overlooking the nun's walk where he could be seen nightly hoping to catch a glimpse. Upon his death in 18, excuse me, in 1892, his son Henry 
Henry. 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 Harry, nice excuse me. Harry. His son, Harry. Oh, that's totally different and, and unique <laughs> and unusual. For... Harry Bull. Harry Bull's a great name. Harry, Harry Bull. Bull. His son, Harry, came into possession of the rectory and decided to raise his own rather substantial family there. On July 28, 1900, four of Harry's daughters, out exploring the grounds, caught sight of the fabled nun walking about 40 yards from the main house. When the girls approached the figure intending to speak with her, she vanished. Parish organist Ernest Ambrose is on record having said the family told him on multiple occasions that they had seen the apparition. Uh, at any rate, he was convinced that they were convinced they'd seen something. Okay. Um, I believe that you believe. <laughs> yes. Fucking shit. And now uh, she would appear. Uh, she would appear in the evenings and in broad daylight sometimes. In fact, so regular were her habits. Eh, <laughs> pun intended. That was a joke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That neighbors, uh, hoping to catch a glimpse of her ghostly constitutional, seldom came away disappointed. She was, however, far from the only ghost in residence. The phantom, a phantom coach was often seen roaring up the drive toward the main house, driven not by one but two headless horsemen and yes. disappearing only feet from the front windows, <gasps> going at full bore. Nice. Upon Harry's death in 1929, the rectory's lease passed into the hands of Reverend Eric Smith. Smith and his family were more than a little apprehensive about moving in, given I the rectory's sinister reputation. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't long before their unease would prove all too prescient. Shortly after moving in, Mrs. Smith discovered a small brown paper bag while clearing out an old cupboard. Inside the bag was what appeared to be a young woman's skull. <gasps> Following this... What had begun as relatively unobtrusive noises and the occasional missing object grew into a flurry of paranormal activity. Put it back! Put the skull back! <laughs> Footsteps echoed from unoccupied quarters. Servant call bells long disconnected began ringing throughout the house at all hours. The phantom coach and its headless horsemen appeared to Mrs. Smith at least once, scaring the poor woman half to death as they charged toward the house on a collision course with the parlor windows. The phenomena escalated to such a fever pitch that the Smiths felt compelled to go public with their story and contact the Daily Mirror, hoping the, to be put in touch with acclaimed paranormal investigator Harry Price. Another of the Harry! Society of Physical, uh, the Society of Psychical Research. Now, Harry Price, as you recall, last episode, we talked about the brown lady and the photograph mm -hmm. of the brown lady. And Harry Price was the, uh, the guy that, that looked at that photo and was like, there's no evidence of trickery. Right. And remember how very wrong he turned out to be. Right. Everybody so just, was like, it's just, all trickery. It's yeah, very just, It's nothing but trickery, Harry. I posted it. Like, well, I saw nothing. <laughs> it's a cover photo for that episode. Uh -huh. And it's very clearly, it just looks like someone in sheets. Yeah. And someone, so. I think, even commented on, on our Twitter that they're like, yeah, it looks like the Virgin Mary. Well, listen to the episode. You're Interesting. Not the only, yeah. um, that you should so, see that. So that was Harry Price of the Society, the Society of Psychical Research. And beginning June 10th, 1929, the paper ran a series of articles recounting the rectory's ghostly history. Harry Price launched an investigation not long after. Far from helping matters, however, his presence seemed to provoke the spirits into an ever-increasing display of malevolence. Ooh. Now, Price claimed to have been pelted violently with stones, vases, and other random objects throughout his exploration. <laughs> Supposed spirit messages materialized in front of him on a mirror. The works, however, with the background in stage conjuring, and given mm. the fact that the more violent activity ceased altogether after he left, mm. the now highly controversial in hindsight Mr. Price came under suspicion even by Mrs. Smith herself, who was livid that a professed expert would risk exposing her family to ridicule just to further his own dubious career. Yeah, especially when, like, if you're going to find somebody to help you because you're, you're having real issues, and that person... It's, it seems... I, I would Shows think, up and is just full of shit. And probably doesn't even believe you. 
Probably doesn't not. care. Or, or as I think more likely as it will become evident with the story, I think he did believe it and just wanted to kind of like he wanted um, evidence. Wanted evidence and thought, well, I'll just. He wanted people to be. He, he believed it and I think thought that it just needed help to get the story out. Right. But because this kind of phenomenon. Fifteen minutes. Well, that's the thing, and that's and well, we'll get to that. All right. Hey, we're not done with Harry Price. Um, the more unusual string of paranormal shenanigans continued more or less unchecked for the next two years until the Smiths moved out. Reverend Lionel Foisters, his wife Marianne, and their adopted daughter Adelaide were the next to take up residence there. Plagued every bit as much as the Smiths before them, the Foisters took copious records of their harrowing experiences. Nice. Good for Windows them. would shatter inexplicably. Stones and bottles would launch themselves through the air. The bell ringing, reported by Mrs. Smith, uh, continued for them. On one occasion, poor Adelaide was mysteriously locked inside a cubbyhole for which there could be found no key. Oh, no. Um, Marion became the poor guy. Don't get into a cubbyhole. <laughs> I don't just fuck a cubby hole. Um, Marion became the poltergeist's special focus before long. Household objects would hurl themselves at her, and in one, st one instance, at least that we know of, she was herself flung from bed in the middle of the night. Most terrifying, however, were the messages scrolled inexplicably along the house's walls, most of which were legible, but some of which, two in particular, uh, could be read. Please for help and prayers, said one and the other. Marianne, please help get me out. Oh. In desperation, Reverend Foister twice attempted to exercise the rectory himself. On the first try, he was struck in the shoulder by a fist-sized rock and put out of commission for several days. The second attempt met with some success. The activity stopped for a time, but, as tends to happen in cases like this, came back with a vengeance. Adelaide came under attack almost nightly. Wild yeah. organ music could uh, could be heard echoing from the church when the building was known to be empty. During Obnoxious. communion, the uh, to the shock and dismay of parishioners, the sacramental wine once became inky and undrinkable right before their eyes. This was the last straw for the Foisters. Between the violent haunting, the media circus surrounding them, and Lionel's failing health, the family abandoned the rectory in October of 1935 and refused to set foot on it again. Foister's yeah. successors uh, followed his example and declined to live there, leaving Morley Rectory unoccupied, at least by the living, for nearly two years. Wow. Enter once again Harry Price, who, perhaps to repair his somewhat tarnished reputation, petitioned to rent the rectory from the holding company Queen Anne's Bounty in 1937. Determined to conduct his investigation without in interference, uh, Price assembled a team of 48 fellow researchers and made an unprecedentedly thorough study of the haunting over a period of 12 months. Certain areas were found to be significantly hotter or colder than on average. The garden variety barrage of poltergeist activity was witnessed by dozens of people at multiple times. Uh, footsteps, knockings, thrown objects, all that stuff. Um, and as if toying with them, the spirits would even sometimes inhabit investigators' coats put away in the cloakroom and reportedly float the garments through the house. In March of 1938, a team member's daughter named Helen Glanville held a planchette seance in Streatham, South London, with the express purpose of getting in touch with the rectory's unearthly residence. Helen claimed to make contact with two distinct entities, uh, Mary Lair, who took credit for the wall writing and confirmed the age-old legend of her murder by Henry Waldegrave, and a second spirit curiously named Sunex Amures. S-U-N-E-X-A-M-U-R-E-S. Sunex vowed to set the rectory on fire at nine o'clock that night, after which he said the remains of a murder victim hidden on the grounds for centuries would be uncovered. Now, the fire didn't happen, but 
Price concluded his investigation in 1938, after which a man named Captain W.H. Gregson brought the, bought the rectory and capitalized on its uh, popularity by offering guided tours. He claimed the predictable slew of ghostly phenomena, but added to it the disappearance of his own two beloved dogs. Alas, the man's residency was short. Eleven months to the day following Glanville's seance, the captain knocked over an oil lamp while moving boxes. The resulting fire damaged Borley Rectory beyond repair. Mm. Now, insurance adjusters cast doubt as to how accidental the fire really right. was, but Gregson always maintained his innocence and at any rate was never found guilty in a court of law. During the conflagration, however, a neighbor across the street named Miss Williams swore she could see the nun peering forlornly from an upstairs window. <gasps> see, fire, fire, seances, predicting uh -huh. it. Me, me, me. Charlatans. Um, charlatans. Oh, speaking of which, so Price returned once more to Borley Rectory, uh, or at least what remained of it, in 1943, presumably to seal his long-standing and complicated relationship to the place. Picking through the cellar, he found what appeared to be a pair of human bones and sought to give them a Christian burial in hopes of putting the spirits at rest. By now, though, most people saw this as grandstanding. Yeah. The officials of Borley Parish maintained that the bones were that of a pig and thereby unqualified for Christian burial. Uh, ultimately, the remains were laid to rest in Liston, not in Borley, because that's, all, that's the best that Price could manage. Wow. Um, after his death, that is Borley, in, uh, excuse me, at, at Price's death in yeah. 1948, a reporter from the Daily Mail named Charles Sutton came out fervently against the man, proclaiming the celebrity, the celebrity ghost hunter no more than a fame-obsessed con man. Sutton, you see, had accompanied Price on the latter's initial investigation of the rectory in 1929 and had been clocked in the head with a stone while staking out the hedges. A hardline skeptic, Sutton confronted Price, who, standing nearby, seemed the likeliest culprit, and whom it turns out had a stash of rocks squirreled away in his coat pockets, primed for throwing. <laughs> um, Sutton's public accusations emboldened no less than three of Price's former colleagues to follow suit. Eric Ingwall, K.M. Goldney, and Trevor H. Hall published a book about Price's investigation entitled The Haunting of Borley Rectory. Their conclusion... Uh, was that, quote, when analyzed, the evidence for haunting and poltergeist activity for each and every period appears to diminish in force and finally to vanish away, end quote. Basically, they said it's bullshit. Yeah. Um, a similar study called the Borley Report concluded that much of the paranormal activity supposedly witnessed by Price and his 48 staff members during their tenancy could be attributed either to natural phenomenon misunderstood or outright trickery. Yeah. Especially damning was the observation that the ghostly occurrences rose and fell in intensity directly proportional to the presence of Marianne Foister. That was Lionel's uh, wife, the last, mm -hmm. the last rectors to live there. Okay. Now, accused by paranormal researcher Terence Hines of fraud, Marianne Foster admitted later in life to more or less staging the whole affair. And I do mean affair. Oh. Marianne, you see, was stepping out on Lionel with their lodger, a guy named Frank Peerless. Now, Frank, for reason best known to himself, usually went by the name Francois Darles. Uh, Lionel Foister refers to him in his diaries as Frank Lawless. Marianne fabricated the ghostly going on, uh, goings on as an effective method for keeping her husband occupied while she and Francois got it on. Oh my gosh. A BBC documentary about Borley Rectory slated for broadcast in September of 1956 was ultimately cancelled for fear that Marianne would sue. Oh! Um, also, going back to the original rector, uh, Reverend Bull, the first uh, Reverend Bull, the children of Reverend Bull, who by now were very old, 
um, were surprised to learn uh, when all this happened, they were surprised to learn that they had lived in, quote, England's most haunted house, saying that despite <laughs> their father's obsession with the paranormal, none of them had uh, seen much of anything unusual growing up. They had, however, been familiar with Walter Scott's epic poem, uh, Marmion, in which a nun is walled up alive. This ah. and a later gothic novel by H. Ryder Haggard entitled Montezuma's Daughter seems to be the basis of the spooky nun legend, at least according to historians, who so far have found zero evidence that any nun has ever met a fate like this anywhere near Borley. Though Price's work isn't without its defenders, notably SPR alumnus Robert Hastings, along with Price's literary executors Paul Tabori and Peter Underwood, modern-day society members like Michael Coleman remain unconvinced, saying their rebukes fail to provide a satisfying answer as to the problems underlying Price's investigation. But yeah. while the hullabaloo surrounding the controversial researcher's involvement, not to mention Marianne Foister's confession, yeah. uh, it wasn't a rec the rectory was a home rectory. <laughs> now, all that tends to cast the whole story into doubt, reports by the town folk of strange going on, goings on where the rectory once stood haven't slackened one bit, and to this day it's said the nun can still be seen gloomily pacing the lawn at twilight. Mm. Thoughts? That basically is the history of Borley Rectory, which like was the for its time the kind of Amityville. Right. You know, yeah. which at the time, and, and uh, this without was... Without all of the murdering. Without all the murdering. Well, people thought there would have been murders. Right. Or there none had been murdered, but it wasn't true. It yeah. was just a story. And... Uh, a poltergeist story, A poltergeist maybe. story. But as we've... It reminds me of the Pontefract, the, the Black Monk of Pontefract, where there mm -hmm. was this a similar story about a monk that had been unjustly hung there you know, centuries before, and that indeed there was a ghost of a monk that they saw, but it seemed to be the poltergeist just kind of deciding to dress itself up in the trappings right. of this completely made-up story. Right. So it's like the phenomena is real, but the origins for it are totally made up, and the poltergeist seems to like to poke fun at that fact by being right. like, oh, you want a nun? Oh, let's give you a nun. Right. It's like any really scary movie situation, if there's a little girl that shows up and needs help, don't. She's not a little girl. She don't <laughs> help her. She is lying to you. She's a demon. Like, you know what I mean? It's just pretending it's pretending to be something else. Just that and, and nuns are just bad news unless they're alive. And even um, then. And even then, I mean, God if <laughs> I mean, it's only Flash if you're in to Catholic school. school. Only if you're only if you're, if you're in school. I never went to a Catholic school. Actually, all the nuns I ever met have been lovely and very funny. True, true, true. Yeah. My best friend went to Catholic school and she was like, oh yeah, the nuns are great, but not the one, all of them have that one old nun, like it was mm -hmm. old school, they used to like hit them with the ruler. Yeah. I don't believe that's done much anymore, but no. there are people who remember it. Right. I mean, and you know, if you watch Sister Act, <laughs> that, I feel like that's an accurate representation. <laughs> What's so troubling about Rectory is that it's quite possible that there's something to the story that the, mm -hmm. the phenomenons are real. But then, you know, but then people um, start trying to come up with, you know, because I think poltergeists are a totally different thing than, than what we think of as ghosts. I don't necessarily think that poltergeists are... Previously human. The souls of the dead. Right. I mean, they might be. I just don't see that there's any evidence for that. But it seems that people, because of ghostly tradition, when something weird happens along the line of a poltergeist, they go, well, maybe it's the ghost of this person. I bet someone died here. And suddenly the room, you know, the game of telephone begins and, who did you know, it? Yeah. Uh, who did it and Which did it reality, even happen. And then, and then what's weird is there seems to be a feedback loop where then the phenomenon then reinforces that false belief. Right. 
and people, but, and all it takes is for someone to step in and be like, but the murder never happened. And it just falls and it makes everyone doubt everything. Yeah. Rather than I think, I think there's some truth to the Borley activity. I just don't think that, I think Harry Price was full of shit. Yeah. Um, and I think most of that like was full of shit. I think the, the Captain Gregson guy that was the last owner that uh, burned it down. I think he probably was like, yeah, no, I think probably he just wasn't making enough money that he thought he was going to make by opening this place up to tours because right. it's in the middle of fucking nowhere. Yeah. And I think by then Harry Price's reputation had made most people go, yeah, it's bullshit. There's no boiler. It's not fucking haunted. So he wasn't making money. So he thought, oh, like a year ago, didn't that seance person, wasn't that published in the papers about there saying that there'd be a fire? <gasps> oh, that's tomorrow night, a year to the day. Awesome. I'll just burn this place down and get the insurance for whatever. And so it just, it's a little too perfect. But I do think that the Smith family and that the bulls before them probably experienced some weird stuff and it just got, it just spun out of control. And then in comes, you know, in comes the fucking ghost hunters who are like, dude, (laughs) then come, you know, they're (laughs) yelling at the spirits, (laughs) yelling at the spirits. And suddenly everyone's just certain it's the spirit of a dead nun. And it's, you know, it's something totally else. Well, and the thing is just because it, the nun didn't have to be killed on the property for there to be a nun haunting it. I guess. You know, like, I guess. I there know. could be a nun there. I mean, it's a Catholic church. <laughs> there so, could be a nun that was very fond of that land. Right. Um, but there's also no evidence. I, I should I should have admitted, that, that I should have included, that there's no evidence that there was ever a Benedictine convent on that. That's, that's also just a legend that they found no right. evidence for. There was something on there, but they don't know that it was a convent or a monastery or a fucking outhouse. They right. have no clue. There's no records. Right. Um, because it's just that remote portion of England like no one's made there's so many old buildings and old networks of tunnels they're like right. well this was presumably something but we don't know because the records have long been lost well and who knows it could have been somebody who was there or something and you but, think about Catholicism you, yeah. too they believe a lot of times that a ghost is actually in purgatory looking for help mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. if a nun is looking for help a rectory Just, is it, a good place to get some help to finish you know some business that you didn't get taken care of it's true and she's just never which could be help. why bull was so particularly interested maybe right. he thought like this nun needs help so if i kind of you know make myself available to her by building a house close to where she walks but i mean um, realistically though that you know yeah. like the priest that i spoke with mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they've helped a priest that was a ghost get through right. some stuff he was supposed to do and it was it was a it was very much a group effort within the church mm-hmm. to make sure that this guy could cross over for, you know. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, but all that is possible. It just possibly just the story they're projecting onto the phenomenon, mm-hmm. the phenomenon that like, if you see, if you're told that there's a nun that walks these grounds and you see a weird swath of white, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going down the path, you know, that you wouldn't otherwise think looked like a nun, you'd see a nun mm-hmm. because you were told that's what's there. Suggestion um, being what it and is. And then, yeah. so that's why I think, I think the phenomenon is is half real and half dressed up by our expectations. Mm-hmm. In the case of poltergeist activity, especially because, especially because I think poltergeist activity is real. I mean, I believe in it. I think it happens at least some of the time. Not all poltergeist cases can be real, but I think it's it's like it, there is almost an intelligence to it that decides, like, okay, well, that's the way I get to be seen. Then, as if you know, as if I I come to you dressed like this this story that you've been told because that'll get attention well when you think about it too you have these families that have tons of children Uh there's always probably a child in their early teens that is very 
you know, that's when... It was going through puberty. Going through puberty. <laughs> Which seems to be the focus of poltergeist hauntings. Right? right, if not them creating it themselves mm-hmm. with the, you know, teen angst. Yeah, you mean like you mean like telepathically, like unconsciously yes, creating it, yeah, which is a, a long-standing theory. Well, and and you think about it too. If for generations, your family has had multiple people living there, and they've all had these experiences, and then you're 13, you start to have the experiences. Mm-hmm. You might be creating what you'd heard created, yeah, from other people. Not that it's not happening; they're just unknowingly creating it themselves. Yeah, or at least part of it. I I kind of agree with Colin Wilson. Getting back to him again on poltergeist yeah. activity, that it's a combination of both. It's mm-hmm. like there's an entity or some kind of intelligence that's dormant on the in the land or the location, for whatever reason that it's it's not it was never human or, or maybe it wasn't, and that the the sort of tele the unconscious telepathic turmoil going on in in a teenager. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes a person that's, you know, struggling with alcohol abuse or, or substance abuse or whatever gives that entity fuel to manifest by. And so it's right. kind of a it's kind of an unconscious collaboration that creates it. But yeah. it's not. It's just and what's so unfortunate about it is that the phenomenon is real, but the interpretation that certain charlatans decide to play up right. because that's the story people want to hear. They're like, okay, it's a nun. So, oh, look at this. I found bones. And people mm-hmm. can go like, "That's those are pig bones. Right. And they see the pig bones and go, okay, well, then none of this can be true. Yeah. Like, if it's not a nun walled up in, in the cellar, then there can be no ghost nun. Right. <laughs> and there so is they just nothing. Kind of, no bells are ringing. You're full of shit. They throw the nun out with the bathwater, as it were. And <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> which I think is, I think it's unfortunate because, uh, you know, people like Price come in, I think, you know, either he's just a complete, you know, fucking attention grabbing asshole that's like, guys, let's make a haunting because it'll be fun. We'll get some money. Right. Or he really believes in it. And in order to get money or funding, he has to generate public interest, which, you know, you can't rely on the phenomena itself to do that because it's too unpredictable. So, hey, guys, we'll just go and we'll get thrown. We'll, we'll have throw, stones thrown at us and we'll we'll have coats floating around. We'll I tell just people have that. this image in my mind of this old British dude throwing a rock at a guy and then like whistling. <laughs> what huh something happened to you? I, I love that idea but yeah I, I think somewhere in the heart of every British person is a man that wants to throw a rock at someone I feel like that's in the heart of every person period probably but the British would would be so polite about it that to- oh my god what what what, what I what? just remembered something else about the guy in my story the pastor guy the preacher yeah and- yeah yeah What's his name? I totally Boobar, 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 Boobar. He went, okay, so when he got out of prison, his first sermon, he passed out stones to everybody <laughs> in his congregation and said, let he who has not sinned throw the first stone, cast the first stone. And of course, nobody threw stones and, you know, but he's trying to say, Ma, you're guilty of shit too. So it's, that's just another that's parallel really that I completely forgot about. Wow. Yeah. And also... How arrogant the ghosts must be to throw stones at people. Like, hey, a giant sin. We're like, yeah, well, you're in purgatory. Yeah, Christ <laughs> You must Christ have done is the something. Is the, the, the stone thrower. I think we can safely say that. Yeah, or it could be that things were thrown because uh, the Smith family right. uh, claimed to some some objects moving and stuff like that. But I, I just, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the, you know, because I don't, I'm still of the mind that when we see a ghost... You know, an apparition, which is still, of course, pretty rare mm-hmm. uh, that that happens. But I think when people see apparitions, I don't, I think they're a projection. Yeah. I think they're real, but I don't think they're real in the way that we think they are. I think I would love to come to arrive at a theory of how the human mind works by kind of incorporating all these, 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 um, 
different threads. Because uh, I, I think the the phenomenon, I what I'm saying is all of, of which is to say that I'm on the fence about Borley Rectory. I think there is some truth to it. And I think um, the story that's been told about it, like in terms of like what it is, yeah. has been over the years so easily disproved that people think everything about it. Right. None of it can be real when there's probably. And I mean, that's a reasonable thing to assume. It's old It's probably old. something real. It's something there. Yeah. But yeah. Because you can't tell me, just like on our cold open, you can't tell me that there aren't certain areas that have a certain energy where it feels like something mm -hmm. could happen here. And yeah. just like there's something is missing that if I if that one piece was in place, there'd be some shit going down right now. Right. We've all been in those places. Yeah. And that's a long that's that goes back to pagan beliefs of there being, you know, genie loci, you know, mm -hmm. spirits attached to a particular place. And they were totally ambivalent and sometimes malevolent and that they seem to draw power from our perceptions. In a weird way. Yeah. Which, of course, just sounds like demons, according to right. modern Christian theology. Yeah, that's true. Who knows? Mm, there's yeah. no, I don't fascinating. Know. It is fascinating. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. I just, I've been wanting to do Borley Rectory for a little while. And I was it's like, good. oh, that seems a good time. After really after good. coming across Harry Price's name in the Brown Lady of Random Hall. I know. I was like, there we go. Here's the one it's that Price connected. is most famous for. It's all connected. He was definitely, Price was definitely like the Zach Bagans of his day. Ugh. No, I really don't like him. <laughs> 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 I'm not calling Zach Bagans a fraud. I, I don't presume to know, but no, you're not. <sighs> um, uh, I think he has the best of intentions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you everybody for listening, Michael for slurping. <laughs> uh, what is? Are you doing anything this weekend? You're not going anywhere. No, I'm staying in town. Stay home. I'm staying in town yeah. too. Oh my god, it's so nice. Brandon flew next, out to LA. For, what's your next convention? Uh, my next convention is in Iowa on the weekend of the 11th. Oh, so okay. a couple weeks from now. Mine. Actually. Next I, weekend we go and get a puppy. <gasps> I'm excited. Mm -hmm. Genji's getting a Bubba Brava. It's actually his nephew. His nephew, a baby nephew. nephew. A baby nephew. It's his baby. It's his brother's kid. Oh. <laughs> It seems so weird to, to talk about dogs in those terms. It's my brother's kid. Because I'll be in town that weekend when you're gone. Ooh, yes. So I went to squish him. I don't need a space. Um, my next thing is 4th of July. Not the weekend, but on the 4th, I will mm. be in Los Angeles Los for Angeles. Anime Expo. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I'll do like a couple autograph signings in the panel. Um, but that's it. That's the one day. And then after that, I'm just going to. I'm not going to go back. I'm going to do other things. <laughs> no, like, <laughs> I'm going to have a good time fair, fair. over the weekend. But um, so, yeah. yeah, all right. Check out oh, ghoulintentions.com um, for all of your ghoul intentions needs. Yeah, all of them. Submit your stories for the cold opens and for the ghosticles episodes. Please do. Those goddamn submissions are so good. Color World does yeah. our t-shirts. You can find the link on our website as well. Mm -hmm. And that's actually the booth at anime they'll have a booth at anime expo and you can actually get shirts for ghoul intentions there as well um so there's they have the they always have the one the, the booth with the big metal it's big all metal, the tower big metal of metal yeah tower of metal but they also have really great shirts and like if you find i what i love about them is that you can do like hey i really like what's on that piece of metal but i want it on a shirt they'll do it for you they're pretty great hey it's awesome pretty great um, I think that's it. Yeah. Do you have anything else to add? No, no. no just keep it up, guys, with the submissions. Yeah. And thanks for listening. Give us reviews. Reviews. If you haven't reviewed us, we're uh, so bad at these closings. We're so well. We're not. We we 
we get to all the major points. That's true. Um, I think by this time, everyone's just kind of reeling from the stories, so it's not like they're paying oh, attention. Right. Anyway. Maybe they're talking over us to each yeah, other, to themselves. Yeah. They're talking amongst the time, themselves. This is generally the time when ghosts start appearing to people. Oh, perfect. <laughs> well, in that case, remember, you, it's, it's okay, okay to, to sleep, sleep with, with the, the lights, lights on. on.